since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I was tired as hell, but I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Did you tell me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And I'm your co-host, Annie Goodman, young adult breast cancer fighter, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so... Got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy with folks because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listen to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. On tonight's show, Ralph Lauren Cancer Center, join us for an exclusive broadcast shining a light on the Ralph Lauren Cancer Center for Cancer Care and Prevention right here in New York City. We'll be speaking with CEO and Medical Director Dr. Gina Villani and Director of Development Marcy Brenholz and Young Adult Patients Danny Jimenez and Heather Nelson. Survivor Spotlight on Tamika Phillips. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout this broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using the hashtag SBRadio. All right. Self-ingratiation applause. Ingratiation. 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 Exactly. Hi there. Hello. Welcome to our fancy SAT or penultimate broadcast of season 14. I have no idea what that means. It is not our sentinel broadcast. No, it is our penultimate. penultimate. Next to last. And I will not be next here to last next to I will not be here next Monday. Oh, no? So it's my, yeah, I'm going to be, well, you guys. So this is your ultimate. It is mine. So season 14. I'm going to be in Boston. For what? See the Yankees play the Red Sox at Fenway. Is Derek Jeter coming? Well, I assume he's going to take that day off. Yeah, I assume unless something catastrophic happens, he will be there. So he's following you, basically. No, I'm first you saw him in Baltimore, and now you're. Yeah, I think that means I'm stalking him. Okay. But I did have my dream fulfilled of meeting him, so I'm just going as a fan. Okay. Hopefully, not to get beat up by a bunch of locals. Right, now, not being a sports person, I'm aware that there's something about the Yankees and the Red Sox. It is the biggest rivalry in all of uh, professional sports. Is that all? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Maureen, yeah, I wouldn't, that I I wouldn't even aware. really argue that. Yeah. No, I was it, trying to think of other like, ones. I'm like, college fact. sports, I've got Ohio State and Michigan. But it's yeah. pretty much a fact. It's been called the biggest rivalry in sports, so it should be fun. Well, we sports, will miss yeah. you on the ultimate Thank you. season finale of uh, season 14. Well, I shall be back for the premiere of, of next season. Season 15. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Season 15. Unless I'm fired sometime in the meantime. From, uh, as a volunteer? Yeah. You could just keep showing up. We can't really fire you. That's true. We like it a straining order, I suppose. That's about it. Yeah. Kenny, what's up? How you doing? Yo. What's up? Nothing. I'm just tending to uh, the internet. Long, it was lonely. <laughs> Is that still there? <laughs> I the internet. I pulled it together. <laughs> How's the store doing? Uh, the store is well. We got a bunch of new stuff coming out. Uh, we switched over to our new warehouse about a month ago, so things are going well with that progress. And uh, yeah, people are people are loving it. And Maureen, how are you? 
I'm good. Coming off the weekend full of summer parties and food, which no one is surprised by at all. <laughs> I realized at the end of Saturday I had nothing but ice cream and meat that day. Did you go to the ice cream social that we happened had, this weekend? So yes, New York the big cancer in New York City had an ice cream crawl on Saturday. We went to three different ice cream shops. I had to tap out after two. Um, Diabetes was kicking in, huh? You know, I just... You know, I, I, I'm ashamed. I'm actually personally ashamed of myself. Yes. Um, but we had a, a really great time. Had a lot of new people come out. So we're getting a lot of new meetups across the country. So we're very excited about that. Excellent. And I love creative ideas like this one. Very cool. Very cool. How was your weekend, MZ? Uh, well, I was in Denver with Ali Ward, our program director, who uh, is was out there on on coming off of a vacation with her sister, and she was in Denver. I met her out there, and we had a series of really incredible like first date. Uh, conversations with the Colorado Cancer Coalition. Did you speed date in Colorado? We did it wasn't dating. dating naked, was it? No, God. That, <laughs> no, it, that poor reality show, I don't know what to do. My it wife was, is like aghast at the, this thing existed. It was uh, <laughs> dating with marijuana. Yes. No, <laughs> honestly, we met the cancer, Colorado Cancer Coalition. We met with the Denver Children's uh, Executive Leadership. We met with uh, um, the, um, uh, I forget what Lakshmi's new company is, uh, Lakshmi Contra Poly. Is one of, Polly. Thank you. She's mm-hmm. one of the leading oncofertility specialists in the country. She mm-hmm. is transitioning to a, um, a, a this like incredibly massive corporate um, uh, company that does whatever that kind of stuff, that whole reproductive wow. rights stuff. Wow, I did not know that. Exciting. Interesting. And we talked to her, and there were a bunch of there was a meetup, and there was a pre-meetup, and it was great. Pre-up. Pre-up. Right. Everyone is really. Oh, this is all. All right. Context. Mm-hmm. We are hosting our annual international conference next year in Denver. CancerCon is happening August, April 24, 5, 6, mm-hmm. and the entire state is incredibly excited. Everybody, the entire state. I mean, we had people from the governor's office, the Department it of It changed Health, their name to Stupid Cancer Rattle. The whole state, Stupid Cancer Rattle. <laughs> I think you just won license plates. <laughs> no, they, they are really excited that this is coming. They're committed to seeing it to become successful. We have to figure out Accountabilities and responsibilities mm-hmm. and delegation of authority and who's going to do what and whatever, but no one is, no one is blasé about this. We can't bring to... our own militia. But the, you know, I mean, we discussed the dispensaries that are happening out there, and, and mm-hmm. what I learned is that, you know, it's regulated just the same as the cigarette industry. You can't smoke in certain places, and you can't mm-hmm. do it here and there, and you, you like you have to be a certain age, and they're carding, and they're very harsh on like people that break the law. Mm-hmm. So it's not just like you know toke up wherever you want and you know it they're a legitimate <laughs> much to Matt's dismay i'm so real never i'm never going to colorado but i thought they have it in like brownies and cookies and things the edibles are one thing it's a separate emerging industry they just had their uh inaugural edibles uh cannabis corporate conference of sorts and they were and <laughs> the, they the, a lot of c's the corporate corporate cannabis, cannabis conference. conference and the colorado cancer coalition yeah. where they are discussing the legalities and the ethics and the economics and how it's going to work and the taxation and how do you import, export, you know, and there there was a law banning banks from doing business with what were considered illegal substances. But now that it's legal, they have to change the law to let the banks do business. Otherwise, they couldn't let the company start and do business. So that was a whole other thing that they were involved with. And everyone's just like, they're just experimenting, literally experimenting. They don't know Mm -hmm. what's going to happen. It's certainly not increasing car accidents. That's the one thing they were pointing That's what they out. noticed so far. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's like they thought it would just like make everyone a stoner who was not paying attention at the, at the stop sign. But that's not happening. Well, good. Unlike that's, that's here good in news. Staten Island, I suppose. Where <laughs> <laughs> people aren't paying attention to stop signs anyway. Yeah. <laughs> High or not, they just not paying attention to stop signs. <laughs> Next exactly. up is uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and meth. Yes. yes. Following the Breaking Bad. Exactly. Stuff. Right. So we're going to yeah. have, yeah, we'll have a mess of sensory. So uh, going back to New Mexico. <laughs> You're on that. <laughs> I'm delegating. Delegating. Uh, we'll get Brian Cranston as our, our celebrity spokesperson. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Aaron Paul, too. Yes, him too. And, um, yeah, so, so that was my trip to, to Denver with Allie. We're going back there in a month to really solidify up some mm-hmm. relationships. And we were talking sponsorships and what are the corporations. And I want to make a point after our listeners that Maureen specifically had a request yes. of me when I went out there because the headquarters for both Qdoba and Chipotle are in Denver, yeah. and Maureen has demanded a burrito off. Burrito you know? eating contest, yes. which I will win. Yes. Yes. 
I'm sure all the oncologists in there and personal will be thrilled <laughs> with this idea. Yes. Well, if they knew the rest of my normal weekend diet, I'm sure they would <laughs> <laughs> shrug their shoulders. Well, you're healthy, so yeah. that's okay. That's yeah. allowed. And we'll, uh, we'll have a medical sign-off before you can yeah. <laughs> Morality clauses abound. Exactly. <laughs> so it was, it was overall very positive. Everyone was really excited to learn a lot of the people who were at the Cancer Coalition meeting did not know about us. They were unaware of young adult cancer, mm-hmm. um, and uh, this is something that they want to start implementing, and they're really, really big on long-term PED follow-up. They have survivor care plans and long-term follow-up and, and survivorship care. It, they're very big on that, so they really are excited that this has become a new focus of ours to not just target them as a population that comes anyway, but what is unique about long-term PED that the Children's Cancer Center could work with on this, but they have a lot of 20 and 30-somethings all over these mountain areas like Idaho and New Mexico and Kansas who come back to children for follow-up years later, mm-hmm. and they want them to be restored. So it's good. Nice. It was very good. Excellent. Very cool. Glad to hear. Very excited yeah. to bring CancerCon out there and right. really get things going. And we don't like to date stamp the shows, but Chasing Life is on tomorrow night, Tuesdays, every Tuesday. If you don't get a chance to watch it, you can download the app, the ABC Family app, uh, for On Demand, and just last week was the episode, the big episode. The big episode. With the 12-foot banner of stupid hmm. cancer. And we, should, we should get that, and they should send it to it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Where did they get that banner? I don't know where they got that banner. <laughs> I sent them, like, there. a bumper sticker, and they made, like, this Goliath yeah. version of yeah, it. Yeah, it's probably them, like, actually from a giant green screen yeah. projected. And, uh, great. and yeah. I, I think the single most important news of the week is that Kay Diggs is now following me on Twitter. Slow clap happening. <laughs> Snaps for Matt. I think yeah. I would have cared five years ago. I know, I know. You know, he just got, got <laughs> divorced. He, he was uh, dating um, Adina Mandel. He let was? it go, let it go. Oh, I know and she, <laughs> and she let it go. Yeah. <laughs> he unfollowed Adina and followed you instead. Yes, I would imagine that is exactly what happened. Turns out, interesting. We're but, hearing from Mallory on the couch that they were, in fact, married. Oh, they were? <laughs> yes. Okay. Mallory is our celebrity, knowledgeable uh, person. Oh, However, man. we are yeah, running children. out but of... But then I was shamed they they that it. he follows 91,000 people, so I'm not really that special. Right. I didn't, I, wanna, I didn't want to burst your bubble, but he followed me like eight weeks ago. Yeah? And I have photographic <laughs> evidence. I Instagrammed it. <laughs> to make you feel better, he has not yet followed me. Me okay. either. That's so, okay. I don't I'm really care. I'm still waiting for my Tay Diggs follow. <laughs> Tay Diggs, if you're out there. Yes. Thank At Morning Suite. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get this show started here. We are really excited to kick off the uh, the broadcast with our Survivor Spotlight. Tamika Phillips is the adult survivor of Stage 3 Multiple Myeloma. She joins us tonight to share her story and shed light on this rare form of the disease. Hello, Tamika. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for joining us on such uh, short notice. I We uh, we got the uh, hello and hello. who you are. Like, Let's get her on the show. So <laughs> there you are. <laughs> Thank you. So multiple myeloma is a topic we don't typically discuss because it's very rare, and it, you know I'm, I'm sure you will reaffirm this. It's an old person's cancer, but you're going to prove that to be completely and entirely inaccurate, and we'd love you to just start by talking us through what your life was like, you know, six months or so leading up to this diagnosis. Um, yes, I am going to talk about that this is not an old person's cancer. I was 31 when I was initially diagnosed. Six months prior to, I was constantly sick. I had headaches all day, every day, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. At some point, I was stopping on the side of the road because I used to commute to work an hour one way. I used to stop on the side of the road, open my car door, get sick. I was told that I was losing the color in my skin. No one could figure out what was going on with me. I went from doctor to doctor. I went from my primary care. She sent me to a ear, nose, and throat doctor because I was having a thumping in my ear. He sent me to a neurologist. He sent me to a physical therapist because I had literally tension in my shoulders that you could feel the knots. And they all said the same thing. You're just stressed. You have a high-stressful job. 
you are also back in school full time. I was in the process of getting my second master's at the time, and I was on call for my job. I was had newfound duties as well at some point. We had to be on call for the actual facility as well as our department. So no one could really figure out what was going on. I was attending Utica in upstate New York, and in August of 2012, I was out there. And on my way back, I just didn't feel really well. And I spoke to a colleague who was a nurse, and she said, through all of this, and this took nine months of all going back and forth to the doctor, she said, has anyone given you a blood test? You may be anemic. And I said, no, no one's given me a blood test, but I've always been borderline anemic since I was in undergraduate school. So I went to the doctor, and they called me. I missed the call. But I said, oh, well, I'll call them back later. They called me back, and I said, this must be important. And then they called me and said, well, we figured out why you're so tired. Because when I came back from New York that weekend, I slept anywhere I could. I slept on my floor for 12 hours straight, and when I woke up, I still was tired. And they said, well, we figured out why you're so tired. Your blood count is a five. And I said, okay, so I need to start taking my iron again because I didn't know what that meant at the time. They said, no, you need a blood transfusion. So I went the next day, and they admitted me. And I was like, why are you admitting me? And the nurses were walking behind me. They said I was a fall risk and everything because they said they did not understand how I was even walking because most people would pass out around blood count of six and seven. A normal blood count for a woman is around 12, and mine was a five, and they did not know how long that happened. So they ran all these tests. They gave me biopsies and every test you can think of, and they came back and said, you have stage three multiple myeloma. Well, what's that? And then, it's, a, and then it's a blood what, cancer. And then what happened after that? Uh, did you start chemotherapy right away? Did you do fertility preservation? What was your first step after your diagnosis? After my diagnosis and I, and I got out, they, you know, set up everything through my insurance at the time because I was working, and we started chemotherapy probably two weeks afterwards. So that was the end of September of 2012. And I was on chemo at least for three or four weeks before I actually had a reaction to one of the medications. And I was actually in my apartment, passed out for three days, and no one knew where I was. I could not answer the phone. People were calling me and things like that. Prior to that one particular drug, I was doing fine. I was not tired. I wasn't sick. I just had the the taste buds, like everybody said, their taste buds changed. That's all I had. But when I received that one particular drug for the next three or four days, I was just more tired. I was sore. And then at some point, I don't remember, till this day, I still don't remember certain things. At all. Well, I'm reading your bio here, and it says that you went into renal failure? Yes, I did. When they found me, I remember saying, I have to go to the bathroom. I just remember saying that. And from my understanding, I was told that I started on dialysis on October 31st, 2012, on Halloween, because I had no kidney function. They we're not sure why, so it was always a battle between my nephrologist and my oncologist because my nephrologist said it was the drug, Zometa, and then my oncologist said, well, it probably was the myeloma, but after I stopped taking Zometa, I haven't had a problem since. So I did go, I was on dialysis for about two months straight after I, because I was in the hospital for about four weeks, almost four weeks. I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to do a whole lot of other things for myself because I couldn't do any of that. I could not even lift my legs up at some point. So I had to go on dialysis Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. 
And then several months later, you have to go through a stem cell transplant as well, correct? Yes, I just had a stem cell transplant this past September on September the 13th, 2013, which was a Friday the 13th, so I would never forget that. So after I went through all of the other drama of my kidney shutting down, having to learn how to do everything over, we finally got back on chemo. They never stopped my chemotherapy when I was in the hospital. So they changed my drugs because some things were not working fast enough because when I was initially diagnosed, it was over 90% of my body. So they wanted to try to get it down to at least low enough, preferably 0%, before I had my stem cell transplant because I go to a whole different city. I live in Austin, Texas, but I have my stem cell doctor in Houston. So they changed my medication, and then they got it down, the myeloma cells, to 15%. Then I started harvesting my cells in August of 2013, and then I had my transplant in September. And you were pronounced disease-free. Yes, as of March 2014. So you're coming up on, uh, what is it, like three months now, right? Four months? Yes. Yes. That's a that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's a milestone. Yes, it it, it is a big deal. <laughs> it's, it mm-hmm. is a milestone seeing where I was and see where I, where I am now because I have pictures of what I looked like when I was found in my apartment. And it just looks. Terrible. It looks gross. I was bloated. I had stuff forming on my face because I was in here for so long. I was dehydrated. I I hadn't had anything to eat for three days. So I I do think that's a a big milestone. What I find most interesting about your story, Tamika, is that you uh, majored in psychology and have a master's in clinical psychology, and the therapist needs therapy. Uh, could you talk us through how that experience has been for you as someone who was on the other side of the fence for a while? Yes, I've always heard that therapists need therapy anyway because you uh-huh. do take on everybody else's problems. <laughs> I mean, you literally, you don't just have your job. You have friends, you have family who wants to put their problems on you. So you always have to have that. But When I was on the other side of it and I needed help when I was sick, it was hard for me to accept that because I'm used to always being the one that's helping other people. I'm not used to being helped or asking for help. So that was something that I had to learn how to deal with. It's still things that I have to learn to deal with now because it's still hard for me to say, hey, I need help hey, I need someone to listen to me because I'm used to just taking that on for myself. But you do have to reach out to other people because you can't do it by yourself. You have to find someone who's going to be empathetic or sympathetic, depending upon their situation, whether they know if what you're going through or not or have experienced it themselves. But you have to have that person to talk to because you can't do it by yourself during your situation. I'm all for therapy. I try to go as often as possible. It's a good thing. Um, it it so, is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I want to ask you a little about fertility. Is that something your doctors addressed? Is that something you addressed? Um, or did you just start treatment right out of the gate and you didn't have an opportunity? Uh, how did that whole process go for you? We did not have an opportunity. They said it was so aggressive they immediately started as soon as possible. So no one talked to me about fertility. I had no time to talk to anybody about fertility at all. So I don't know what my options at this time would be Yeah, if I had any. Sadly, that's a very common situation and one that I found myself in as well. So I feel for you. Tamika, I went to Binghamton, so I know Utica pretty well. I assume you're speaking of Utica, New York, correct? Yes, I was in their online program with cybersecurity, so we would have to come up there every couple of months to do like a three-day session and things like that. So, yes, Utica, New York. Did you <laughs> go Wegmans? Did you have any uh, 
treatment up there or care up there? Or did you spend like a long time up there? Or was it really just you were there for work and then you came back and had your uh, your doctor appointments separately? No, actually, I didn't find out until after. So okay. I was a year into my program and, you know, my professors understood and so they told me I can come back at any time I want to to complete because I was completely changing my career. So I actually had to think when I did my homework and assignments because this was something new for me. This wasn't psychology. So, no, this all happened after. After so I got I, my diagnosis a few, of probably about a month or so after I came from Utica from that trip. I uh, understand you're part of a film project because we were uh, put in touch through our previous guest, Lauren Hassel, correct? Correct. Why don't you uh, yes. talk about the film project? What's it all about? Um, this was about a young lady who had experienced cancer within her family. She had a sister that passed away from cancer. I'm not sure the particular type, but she was pretty young when she passed away. And I believe the the young lady who directed it said she was like 16 when her sister passed away. So she was inspired by that to do a short film about young love. How would it be to be in love with somebody and then you find out, hey, you have cancer. How does one deal with it? So it was mainly a Kickstarter. A few people had did interviews and she used that as her Kickstarter into this to try to raise money so she can complete her project. And I was one of those interviews. So what? this is a young adult show. We're a young adult organization. We focus on cancer in your teens, 20s, and 30s. What is your message to other young women who are facing this consistent misdiagnosis, who are totally convinced that they're listening to their bodies and no one wants to hear them? I would say... Continue to go to the doctor. Now that I know, I would have demanded a blood test. Hey, someone give me a blood test. So you need to be proactive in your situation and say, okay, I've gone to this doctor. This doctor said this. Now they're sending me here. But I need everyone to come together to collaborate. So we can try to figure out what is going on with me and my body because I know something is not right. It's not normal for a person to have a headache 24 hours a day every day of the week. That That is something wrong with that. And it's not just stress. It's something else that is going on. And, you, again, you just have to be proactive in your own body, your treatment, your illnesses, whatever you think that is going on with you. And throughout all your treatment, complications, and everything you've been through, how did you remain positive? Was it through the support of your friends and family or did you pick up some new hobbies? Uh, How did you get through it in such a, you know, positive manner? For me, how I stayed positive, I, I relied on my faith a lot. I've grown a lot in my faith since I was younger to older. I stay in prayer. I try to keep myself around positive people. I also still participate in different activities, whether they're social activities, volunteer events, or anything. I do try to stay away from people who are negative, those who bring me stress. And I also try to exercise when I can, when I feel up to it, because I know that exercising will help improve your mood because it will increase your serotonin and dopamine. And also my little dog helps me stay positive. <laughs> yeah, we know all about pet therapy. That's some good stuff. Well, listen, I really want to thank you for being our guest tonight. It was brave of you. We, if uh, if we can get a copy of the uh, the film or learn more about the Kickstarter, we'll definitely promote that. But thank you so much okay. for sharing your story. Multiple myeloma is not a disease of the agent anymore. You're making it. You're trending on uh, on the uh, the internet, Mika, for getting an old man's disease. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, don't be a stranger. Stay in touch. Enjoy all and keep it weird. Okay. Thanks. All right. Bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye.
All right, Kenny, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop chat calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly do not want you missing out. Have some events happening in Allentown, Hinsdale, Modesto, Cody, Clifton, Anchorage, and Raleigh. Cancer is lonely, period, and we've got the cure. It's called Instapeer, our forthcoming free mobile app that will bring instant anonymous peer support to anyone affected by any cancer. Visit instapeer.org to watch our video, learn more, and consider making a tax-deductible donation so you can be a part of history. Instapeer.org. It's always a good time to stock up on Stupid Cancer Gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and cool with all new products and styles to choose from. We've also got an awesome skateboard, and don't forget about Flip, the Cancer Bird, our latest plushie mascot. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud, wear stupid cancer, and that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right, super stoked, not just because... It's a great topic because they're all here in the studio. Yes, we have four incredible guests live here with us at the Super Cancer Studio, otherwise known as the Chemo Deck. Join us tonight. We have Dr. Gina Villani, the CEO and medical director of the Ralph Lauren Center for Cancer Care Prevention. Mark C. Brentholtz, who is the fundraising professional and director of development right there. And two young adult survivors coming right out of the clinic. We have uh, Danny Jimenez, is a patient who was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's follicular... Oh, Am I saying that right? Yes. Follicular. Yes. We're going to discuss what the hell that means. <laughs> Lymphoma at 36. And Heather Nelson, who is uh, diagnosed in April 2005 and the second time in March 2014, both times with breast cancer. We are really, really thrilled to have a very engaging conversation here with our guests. Please welcome Heather, Danny, Gina, and Marcy. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. So Thank let's you. start with a doctor in the house because you are a doctor. You clearly went to med school and you're pretty smart. Um, what is the Ralph Lauren Center for Cancer? Uh, what is the official name, by the way? I'm, I think I'm botching it every no, time. No, no, no. You're doing just fine. All right, go ahead. The what Ralph is Ralph Lauren Center for... Now I'm botching <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> the Ralph Lauren Center for Cancer Care and Prevention. Wonderful. What is it? It's a very unique place that focuses on preventing cancer and treating cancer. So... That, that's somewhat unique in that most people either prevent the cancer or treat it. We like to do both. And when did it start? How did it originate? Yeah, it started 11 years ago. And it started because a, a surgeon in Harlem by the name of Harold Freeman noted that the women in Harlem were dying from breast cancer at a much higher rate than folks right down the street. And so he actually went to Memorial Sloan Kettering and said, you know, we've got to do something about this. And so Memorial Sloan Kettering, together with the Ralph Lauren Foundation, founded the center. And the mission of the center is really started with looking at folks with racial and ethnic disparities in cancer care. But as we've evolved, sadly, we've realized that there are many different populations who suffer from cancer disparities. So the data clearly does show all of this. How could you address that? I know Harold Freeman, who is, I love to, he's a hero of mine. He's, he's the Sidney Poitier of cancer, I call him, because he's so eloquent and intelligent. And he's able to articulate, matter of fact, this, 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 and this. How did that start to coalesce? If you're looking to address these disparities, I was involved with the Intercultural Cancer Council in D.C. a couple of years ago. We still keep in touch about addressing disparities. It's incredibly nuanced. And you first have to understand the nuances and the sub-nuances of each particular culture to figure out how you even talk to them, listen to them. Can you talk through some of the success models that you've experienced at the Ralph Lawrence Center. Yeah, you know, I, a lot of people say that. I don't really think it's that nuanced. I think what you need to do is gather folks who just have a genuine concern for other human beings. who Or do that. <laughs> who really care about the patients that they're treating and who go to work for more than just a paycheck, who come to work to make a difference in the world and then it becomes quite easy because you're just relating to another 
human being. And if you don't understand all the nuances, you're not afraid to say, I don't really understand where you're coming from. Teach me. Right. And I had the privilege, and thank you for this opportunity, to have me uh, brought up there to take a tour of the center. It is meticulous. It is beautiful. I mean, obviously, Rappler and furniture, and it's donated, and it's just it's extra, like Abercrombie for chemo, right? So mm-hmm. I actually Ralph Lauren for chemo. But I was really inspired by how organized it is. It's very focused. It's very mission-driven, mission and purpose-driven. And Marcy, you are a young adult cancer survivor, and now you work at an oncology clinic. Uh, we, we just had a therapist, a psychologist on the show who had cancer as a young adult and had to have therapy. It's the other side of the fence. I'd love you to just share your story briefly and talk through us what it's like to be on, on this side now. Sure. Um, also, I think it's very exciting that Tay Diggs is following you. Just saying. Okay. <laughs> um, I was sitting back here. Um, I, had, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was 24 um, in 2006, and I was just about to leave for law school in Washington, D.C. I'm from New York originally, um, and I was diagnosed, and the first time I went to see my hematologist, he was like, oh, that's cute. You think you're going to go to law school and get chemo at the same time. That's not <laughs> happening. Right. Um, anyway, so I was working uh, at the Breast Cancer Research Foundation at the time. I was already a fundraiser, and thankfully, I didn't go to law school, and I stayed in my profession. So that's that's great because I've gotten to work at some wonderful places. Um, I remember when I was going through my treatment I thought a lot about what it would be like if I were very elderly and couldn't comprehend the system and couldn't keep track of all of the doctors and the appointments and um, the screens and the diagnostic testing and, you know, what would I do? Who would help me get through it if I wasn't kind of a young and and energetic, educated person with, with resources? So it's interesting now to come to the Ralph Lauren Center because we're not necessarily working with elderly patients. A lot of them are, but we're working with people who don't have all the resources that I had. I also had excellent insurance. So um, it, it really helps me understand the full complement of people's experiences. When I first went up to the Ralph Lauren Center to interview with Dr. Villani, our director of clinical operations gave us a tour, and we have a chemo suite on site. And I walked into the chemo suite, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. I'm I'm not sure I can come to work every day and and come back in the chemo suite. But it's actually been pretty wonderful for me because I can walk into our office every day and at least understand a little bit about what people are going through who are sitting in our waiting room. And it is such a beautiful place, and the staff is so incredible, Um, and I have – such faith in the care that we're providing for people. So it's it's really nice to have a personal connection to, to what I'm doing at work. Must be rewarding. Yeah, very much. Very cool. Well, let's get to our patients. We specifically wanted to invite some patients at the Ralph Lauren Center to be here to discuss their survivor stories and their experience. And I really want Kenny just maybe left. Sorry. Mm. I really want to make sure that we are able to articulate the uniqueness of the center and the, the culture the center because it really has a, a culture to it and that's very rare it's not some gigantic seven city block giant you know facility it's very intimate it's very personal so why don't we start with heather um and uh you pull the mic toward you or you could do the jennifer lopez and just hold it <laughs> whatever you want <laughs> but talk to us what, what are you doing here oh I'm here because I am really happy to be able to sit in this position and speak on my experience at the Ralph Lauren Center and my experience working with Dr. Balani and hopefully, you know, share my experience with breast cancer, being a two-time survivor, and hopefully anyone who's hearing this show, you know, can be inspired. I know my story is not unique, um, but that's why I'm here. So I'll share with you my experience at the Ralph Lauren Center first and tell you that um, on my second occurrence, which was last year, it has been a tremendous experience just to be able to walk in those doors and be greeted by uh, Cynthia, I think it is, who's at the front, and she knows I'm there, she knows I was coming, Um, and just to see the interaction of the patients in the waiting room, you know, we walk in, a lot of times we walk, I walk away not knowing the name of the person, I'm maybe forgetting because I have chemo brain, 
but we sit and we have conversations and we're comfortable. Chemo what? Chemo brain. Chemo what? I'm sorry, your name again? I don't know. <laughs> but I say I, I um, stress that because I've been in my experience of, you know, two times, I've been to the big establishments, you know, and I've sat in, in waiting rooms and I haven't felt the at ease, as, as, as at ease as I do feel when I sit in the Ralph Lauren Center. Um, you know, I feel like I stick out when I sit at other establishments, but when I walk into the Ralph Lauren Center, I... I feel really comfortable with my situation, and I'm happy to share and, and embrace others that are there. And as a woman of color, yes, has your experience been unique and different, and would you like to comment on any of that? Yes. My experience has been um, really interesting. It, and it's sad, but I do feel the difference in my the color of my skin, you know, I felt it going through this experience, and it's sad that I have to say that. Um, I, I feel at times, or there have been times where um, I may have been pushed aside as far as time given or time spent with me when I went into an office to sit with with a doctor. This is all before the Ralph Lauren Center, and this is before Dr. Villani. Um, but I felt at times that, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't given the same time, enough time. I wasn't given the same attention. I wasn't given the same length of time, you know, sitting with my doctors. And honestly, that was one of the reasons that made me change my doctors. The first time I was diagnosed because the doctor walked in and he was, you know, I'll just give you the cutting edge. And I'm like, well, explain this to me. And he's like, no, 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 you don't need to know. Just, I just, you know, I am, you know, he stated his name and where right. he just returned from the convention he went to. And he said, this is what you'll get. And I walked away going, one, I'm fatigued. Two, that those drugs are going to knock me off my feet either way. Right. And I really don't want someone to just walk in after I speak with 15 minutes with his assistant and not with him and tell me this is what you're going to get because I just came back from a convention. So I walked away from that saying I need to be heard. And if I am going to survive this thing, I need to find someone who would actually listen to me. So I went on my way to find a second opinion, and I, and I did. And how did you find? Uh, Dr. Galani? Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I had a friend who was, gynecologist and we were talking for a little bit and she knew the facility that Dr. Villani was at that time and she told me just call and speak with the admin or administrative um, director and I called her and she said okay I'll give you you know Dr. Villani and funny thing that night I had an issue and I called I met Dr. Villani and I had an issue after I was after I met with her I called my doctor at the time and I called Dr. Filani. My doctor has not called me back as yet from the big facility. <laughs> okay. Dr. Filani, who was not even my doctor, who had only just made an appointment, had a conversation, and called me within 15 minutes. How dare you? <laughs> How <laughs> dare you, know you be human? But that showed me, as she said earlier, um, you know, her approach to this, it, she cares for, the, for you. She, it's not about the facility it's not about it's the it's the person that she cares about and from my experience that's that's what makes a difference to me because i think it's so hard when you're going through this as you all know um you need to feel that you've got the full attention of the person that's caring for you because mapping your way through this it's not the easiest thing and like you said earlier there's so much information coming at you so much information Besides the hours that you spend till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning on the Internet trying to diagnose yourself and then, you know. All hail Dr. Google. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's, it's, really, it's really important, to, like I said earlier, to be heard and have someone who feels that, you know, makes you feel like a human being and makes you feel that they really do care about you. And you're just, you're just, when you walk in, it's all about you. It's all about me. It's not about anyone else. I think that speaks volumes. Why don't we have Danny take the mic here? Let's. Uh, and please explain what it is that you had. Yeah, I mean, how, I, I hear follicular and I look at my bald head. But how does that relate to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Please describe. Uh, so, follicular lymphoma meaning it um, abnormal follicles and lymph lymphones. So that's basically what follicular lymphoma. That's where the name comes from. Um, so, my journey started four years ago. Um, I was on vacation um, and I was putting lotion on and I felt bumps on my throat and I showed my my partner and my, and my sister-in-law and they were like, oh, it's just swollen lymph nodes. You have uh, 
in the doctor, you just need to get antibiotics. So when I came home, I went to my primary care physician, Dr. Burak. He was wonderful. If you ever need a doctor, go see him. Um, and he gave me antibiotics. I went on two rounds of antibiotics. The lymph nodes stayed the same. I said, there's something wrong here. He said, fine, I'll send you to ENT, needle aspiration. Um, Undiagnosable, yeah, undiagnosable. And I was like, all right, well, it's something, so you have to do something else. He did another one, nothing. They sent me to another specialist, nothing. I went back to my doctor, and he said, well, he's like, I was thinking about your case, and I actually had um, another patient about your age a few years ago who presented the same way, and it turned out to be cancer. He's like, so I am going to send you to um, Dr. Villani at her prior establishment at um, Brooklyn Hospital. And he said, she's the best. I'll call and I'll make the appointment for you. I'll do everything for you. And um, I went to see Dr. Villani. I got my test done, and she said, yes, it's cancer. And two weeks later, I started treatment. Wow. I'm going to go to Dr. Villani. You need, like, an infomercial on the subway or something like that. Like, you're like Dr. Zismore of oncology. <laughs> so let's get you back on, on Mike, Dr. Villani. Um, I wanted to see how we love to use the word, like, um, uh, prevention. The very nuanced, I use the word nuance a lot, it's a very nuanced word. And it's very difficult when you are of our age to understand prevention because A, we're not thinking about it. We're kind of invincible. We get misdiagnosed anyway. And God knows how many people get misdiagnosed. And they're like, okay, oh, whatever. You know, and they don't fight for their rights and have their voice heard like Tamika had to consistently do to have an 80 year old disease when she's, you know, in her early 30s. Uh, what's your perspective on prevention? Yeah, I think it's, well, first, let me just say that I give Danny and Heather a paycheck once a month. <laughs> to, <laughs> to plug me, but... Um, Heavy, your patient, then? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think prevention is kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because you're supposed to do all these things to prevent cancer, and yet it's usually nobody's fault that they got cancer. Right. Right? So... I I don't like that that idea of well let's blame the victim and they must not have been doing preventing what enough supposed to. right right yeah. exactly and especially with younger people so I think that you know we all can do what we can do right we shouldn't smoke and we should watch our weight and we should exercise but we're kind of all human and so yeah. you just do the best that you can and do your screenings when you're supposed to. But stuff happens. Right. So do you prefer to use risk reduction? Absolutely. I mean, is that, I mean, I'm not asking to change the name of your institution, <laughs> but we've had several dozen broadcasts where the difference in the semantic between risk reduction and prevention, but prevention just seems to be like the magazine name, like people just associate with it. And you're right. It's like, I didn't prevent cancer enough. You know, right. what can I right. possibly do? And so, yes, we've actually gotten away from the word prevention and gone to risk reduction and just letting people know what are the things you can do to try to minimize your risk. And you either can do them or you can't, but right. that's okay. Do Is, the best you can. And Are there different applications or implications for that when dealing with disparate groups, minority groups in urban areas? Absolutely. And I, so I think that prevention and the things that we consider prevention have been developed for a certain population. It doesn't fit all populations. Right. And so risk reduction is more of an individualized thing. Let's look at you, your life. What are the things that you can do? What are the things that you can't do to just lower your risk as much as possible? And I'm sure a big part of that, um, having living in New York City, knowing the demographic of where your center is, is a lot of that obesity related. It's obesity, it's smoking, mm -hmm. it's hepatitis, it's genetics, mm -hmm. it's environmental, it's socioeconomic, it's education. It's so many things that perhaps the patient doesn't even have control over. Right. And since you're in a you know, lower-income area of, of the, you know, New York City, how do you help people who are in the demographic of living with the disparity, whether it be don't have health insurance, can't afford health insurance, 
I know that my, I've read, you know, we did a story last week, cancer may be broke. People are dividing up pills and not taking medications as they should because they simply can't afford it. So how do you guys help that population? Right. Well, that's really the whole mission of the center is to when patients come in to figure out, well, what are their barriers to care? And if they're financial, we have a financial navigator. We have a whole cadre of navigators, what we call lay navigators, nurse navigators, financial navigators that are there to really address all of those issues, whatever it is for that individual patient. And that leads to my larger question. Harold Friedman is like the father of patient navigation, and he gave birth to just the philosophy of that you do need to have your hand held whether you want to or not because it's so inane and complex. How have you at the center been able to sort of perfect, not that anything's perfect, but I guess hone that navigation process? Right. And so absolutely. So this is Harold Freeman's baby. That's, again, why the center started was to not only deliver care, but to deliver it with the help of navigation. And what we've done in the past couple of years is really stepped up that navigation. So we've taken it from that lay navigator who is more of a community-based person who um, works on those social determinants of health and now added a layer of nurse navigation. So we have oncology certified nurses who can really sit with that patient and teach them about what their diagnosis is, what their treatment plan is, what their their potential toxicities are, how to deal with those toxicities. So we've taken that concept of navigation and tried to step it up and really teach people about what they're going through. So they should never have to be said, well, you're going to get this drug and that drug and good luck. Right. Basically the opposite of what happened to our three Mm -hmm. (laughs) people. So I want to talk about cultural stigma. We've done a lot of shows on disparity groups, and we did a show, I think, last October about uh, Hispanic women um, and with breast cancer, and the stigma was in certain cultures that you kind of brought it upon yourself. And the same thing with Native American populations and Eskimo, uh, the Pacific Islander, is that there's this culture that you, you brought it upon yourself that's a curse, and even in some, and I would love Dana to comment on this, in some of the Hispanic communities, something as simple as testicular cancer is perceived as almost a homosexual thing. I, I would love you to comment, both of you, let's start with Danny, on has the stigma of cancer from a culture perspective affected you? Uh, yes, it did, actually. Um, uh, I work for 1199 Healthcare Workers Union, which is mostly Caribbean and African-American um, uh, workers. And uh, when I had told a few people that I had cancer, there were... Their big things were like, oh, well, what did you do that, you know, how did you get it? What did you do so I can not do that? Ah, okay. You know, and I said. Water mercury. Yeah, so I told them, I said, I eat rice and beans every day and, uh, you know, the typical, you know, Latino meals and stuff. And they just were like, really? And I'm like, no, I'm just kidding. We can <laughs> stop it. And then uh, to your comment up about uh, testicular cancer being homosexual, I'm homosexual and I'm at every color of man possible. And they all get it, so it's right. Not, exactly. And it, whether they're gay, straight, bisexual, horsexual, whatever it is, it's all across the board, and it's not limited to any population or uh, any ethnic background. So, right. And I remember when we were doing the Native American one, you you did bring it upon yourself. The, the spirits cursed you for getting cancer. You you whatever you did, just by getting it. How could you possibly argue with that if it's coming from that kind of spirituality. Heather, yourself, you, you clearly brought that up, that stigma just in general, you know, feeling like you were compromised because mm-hmm. of the color of your skin mm-hmm. before and you met the magical Ginovalani. <laughs> but within your community, with your friends, your family, your, your what was that experience like for you culturally? Um, I am West Indian. And... Um, what we do and do really well when it comes to the topic of cancer, we try not to say it. We try to hide it. You tell the whole family just, you know, you tell a certain few in the family, they don't tell those that talk a lot. Because then they're going to tell the community, and then everybody's going to be looking at you, and they're going to be wondering what's going on. 
Um, I remember when I was going through chemo and my head was bald, um, I got to the point, well, right out the gate, I was really comfortable with it, but my mother wasn't. So when I went to visit her and I was about to leave the house, she goes, well, you're going out like that? Aren't you going to put your wig on? I'm like, no. I, you know, I'm really comfortable. So within my community, it, it, for those who knew, well, let me just say, I handle it this way. The first time, not a lot of people knew. The second time, I really didn't care. I really, I really don't at this point anymore about it. But the first time, I, I kind of kept it silent or quiet a little bit, um, told those who I knew really would step up and understand and be supportive to me. And then for those who I, I thought wouldn't get it because of the culture, I just kept them out of the story. How have you coped with it? Do you keep a blog? Do you uh, are you online? No, I write. I'm, 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 Old school. Yes. A pen and a paper. Yes. Okay. When my first diagnosis, um, the chemo room was beautiful, and there was a window, and I could see the treetops and the clouds and the sky. And I would write poems. I would go in, and I would just write and write and write and write. And that's how I got through it. And I just keep. I still write to this day. And my aspiration is to pull it all together and get a little book. But I just keep writing. I keep writing. And Danny, yourself, how did you uh, cope? What's your message to other? I mean, we've done also shows on LGBT. In fact, at our international conference this year, didn't we, Maureen, have a session on mm-hmm. LGBT? Yes, we yeah. did. Very well attended, very meaningful, very powerful. Uh, so I would write as well, and I would draw. Um, a lot of times I would do that after I left treatment. Um, I was mentioning to um, the panel before that when I was going through treatment, I saw a lot of people that had those blank stares that had kind of given up on on their lives or whatever. So I would make a point to try and talk to them while I was going through treatment. Uh, and that kind of solidified for myself that I had to be positive and keep going through treatment and, and not give up and, and, and really not give up. So um, I spent a lot of my treatments talking to people. And Marcy, you are in a clinical position right now working with the foundation, but what were your coping mechanisms when you were going through this? Isolation and fear, recurrence, all these mitigating factors that are, you know, we, we like to joke that it's, it's a pain in the ass enough to be in your 20s, let alone throwing cancer on top of that. The funniest thing I think that I experienced while I was going through it was I was 24 and single and thinking like, am I supposed to be dating? How do I do that? Right. Um, I actually did keep a blog which was somewhat more cutting edge in 2006 than it is now. But um, the blog was about my treatments and and my surgeries, but it was also about how funny it was to go into social situations and the way that people reacted. Um, A lot of people didn't didn't know. I was a a little bit, Heather and I were talking about it before. I I didn't tell that many people. I kind of kept it from a lot of people. And it was very funny to see people say, Oh, you started to straighten your hair. Oh, yeah. My hair is naturally curly, and I was wearing a straight wig. So um, I just had a lot of, I, I think I really pulled the humor out of it, or else I don't know what I would have done. So um, a lot of jokes about, about dating and going to parties and, you know, wearing a high neck shirt so no one saw my port kind of stuff. <laughs> it's like I... We're all remembering, like, the I know. insanities. I mean, Annie has been, you're still going through yeah, it I'm now. Yeah, I'm still in treatment now, and um, I will say that, uh, you know, dating is tough. I was, ext- I, I really wanted to start dating, like, as soon as I, ha- as soon as, I was like, as soon as I have enough hair, I'm joining J-Date again, because I just felt like it would bring me back to, like, normalcy, and um, I was always really self-conscious. I mean, I had, like, hair. You know, I wasn't, you know, going out with a buzz cut, but I was always self-conscious and I would say to people, oh, my hair's on the ponytail, those pictures, my hair's really short. And they're like, oh, that's cool. But, um, you know, it's really difficult. And then also what I found the hardest part was um, going to bars and people offering to buy me drinks. Um, This time around, I was, you know, I've been in a relationship, but the first time I wasn't. And I would always have like funny reasons to tell people not buy me a drink oh driving home can't drink and then one time i was at a bar and i told the bartender was giving us free shots and they're like no no, no do it it's free i'm like i'm pregnant i'm sorry i can't drink <laughs> and he's like you don't look pregnant right because <laughs> i was wearing i was like super skinny the i'm first, three days pregnant <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i was like super skinny the first time i did chemo so i was wearing like a pretty tight dress because you want to also when i was you know 30 years old you also want to feel a attractive and you know 
whatever, talk to people and have no intentions of ever seeing them again. But yeah, but the dress is really tight. So he's like, you don't look pregnant. I was like, whatever. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to, that was all. But the fabulousness, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's like the whole thing of cancer as a young person. So I'm on the website right now, your website, uh, at, which is rlccp.com, Ralph Lauren uh, Center for Cancer, Cancer Care and Prevention. Lots of C's, yes. <laughs> and I, I love that you have something here called Slimmed Down Soul Food. It seems very culturally relevant to mm-hmm. your location in the city, and we've all been to Sylvia's, and who could not love that experience? And Red Rooster. Yes, and Red Rooster. So how, how do you work with that culture? How do you get people to eat in ways that may be somewhat divergent from what they're used to, but in the same sort of cultural acceptance or relevancies? Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> Answer me now. Again, I don't mean to keep you have nutrition- giving you I mean, the same Are the nutritionists answer. that work with you on this? We or? don't at this point. We're hoping to get funding for a nutritionist. Um, and again, like I said, I don't want to keep giving you the same answer, but I think that it's a matter of just sitting and talking to people and listening to what they have to say right. and, again, what their barriers are and doing it together and, and kind of forming a, a team approach. Um, you know, you can do anything with the support of a team behind you. So you came from Brooklyn Hospital, which is a fairly large institution, and you went to this very small, almost a community cancer center within a giant city. And you just, what's that been like for you, for your career and your ability to feel like you make a difference? Oh, it's been the best career move of my life, and I change jobs every couple of years. You can ask these two. They've been <laughs> following me all over uh, the five boroughs. But again, I think it's, I've really found a place, you know, I've, I've worked in underserved areas for most of my career, and um, I was always looking for the people who felt the way that I did, and unfortunately sometimes I, I didn't find that. And then I came to the Ralph Lauren Center and I just met all these people who thought the same way I did and felt the same way I did. And I finally feel like I've found a home and so maybe I won't move around so much and maybe I'll stay at the center until I retire. Well, I, I'm really inspired by the, by the center. I think it's unique. I think it demonstrates that you can have an urban community center in a giant urban area and it can be almost an augmentation of what already exists and not necessarily competition for it, but I just walked in that door and I knew right away something very special about it, and I think it's phenomenal. And, again, this focus on navigation, I mean, I was diagnosed in the 90s when everything sucked. It didn't matter. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you kind of do need, especially when you're young, to focus on young adults, all young people, not septuagenarians dealing with our grandkids and our our homes, you know, and uh, it's very admirable that you're able to understand that, and I think the biggest takeaway that I had from our meeting was that young adults are themselves a disparity group and, and we deserve equity and we deserve better. And you're doing that. And we thank you for teaching us about that. And I think we have a lot more to learn and we want to continue this partnership and, and learn from you because that's what it's about. So I'd like to give each of our survivor guests one more shot to just let everybody know what are your, what's your advice for that person. I mean, we, we had uh, Tamika talk about be resilient, this consistent late detection, not being taken seriously, fighting for your rights. We've all experienced that. But if you had to sum up something just to offer, to proffer to our listeners, what would that be? Let's start with Marcy. I, I think it would be what I mentioned before. It's not easy for everybody. But if you can find any humor and any joy in the situation, take it because that, that's really what you have. And, you know, I, I remember just really thinking what my dad always says, which is this is a process, and you just take the steps and keep taking the steps. And sometimes you feel a little bit outside of yourself, kind of like what Danny was saying, those people who glaze over um, and humor and, and how, how weird and how funny it was was what always brought me back to myself. And Heather? Um. I would say just just know that you're not alone. Like I I feel really comfortable in this room because I we're all here and we're all surviving. 
Um, so just say, I just say you're not alone. Find whatever gives you joy. I mean, it comes in different ways to everyone. So just find that thing that gives you joy. And in those those moments where, you know, you feel really alone, just, just go there. To me, it was my spirituality. And being West Indian, you know, I was raised in church, and that's what got me through. My faith got me through. So whatever it is that gives you joy and gives you peace, just hold on to that, even in those moments when there's nobody around. And Danny, uh, close this out. So I would say um, staying positive during the whole ordeal, um, not giving up. Um, it, I would say that me staying positive inspired my family to stay positive. And my father, who was a very stoic, hard, grumpy old man, said to me on, I think it was like my fourth or fifth treatment, he just came and hugged me. And I was like, what's that for? And he goes, you've shown me that you're the strongest man that I know in my whole life. And that just, I started crying because I didn't know what to say to that. So I think we're going to start crying. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, yeah, just staying positive and, and, and um, not giving up is, for me, yeah, the best, the best advice. Well, like I said, I was really excited about this show, and it was certainly not a disappointment. So I'd like to thank uh, Danny Jimenez, Heather Nelson, um, Marcy Brenholz, the Director of Development, and uh, Dr. Gina Villani, the CEO of the, I'm going to say this right, I promise, the Ralph Lawrence Center for Cancer Care and Prevention up in Harlem in New York City. Thank you guys so much. You guys get a round of applause. Okay, now it is time for our closing sequence. Ready, Kenny? Born ready. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, <laughs> you got it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 317th broadcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we did. Smoking a stick at Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our guests tonight, Tamika Phillips, Gina Villani, Marcy Brenholz, Danny Jimenez, and Heather Nelson. Next week's show is season 14 finale, Stupid Chemicals and the Think Dirty app. Only 2% of all chemicals are regulated for human safety, and that is incredibly wrong. Join Lindsay Dahl at Safer Chemicals Healthy Families and Belize B founder and CEO of the Think Dirty app as we dive into the sketchy world of toxic chemicals, industry lobby groups, science, suppression, and empower yourself to live a cleaner, healthier life. Driver Spotlight, I'm Chris Warp. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio, Talk, iTunes, Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, Mallory Rivera, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week for our season 14 finale, live Monday at 8 p.m.